to the Podlets Podcast, a weekly show that explores cloud native one buzzword at a time. Each week, experts in the field will discuss and contrast distributed systems concepts, practices, trade-offs, and lessons learned to help you on your cloud native journey. This space moves fast, and we shouldn't reinvent the wheel. If you're an engineer, operator, or technically minded decision maker, this podcast is for you. Hello and welcome back. This week we'll be discussing the thing that's brought us all together, our jobs. But not just our jobs. I think we're going to be talking about the different kinds of jobs you can find in cloud native land. So this time I'm your host, Nicholas Lane, and with me are Brian Lyles. Howdy. And Carlicia Campos. Hi, everybody. Glad to be here. So how's it going, y'all? Very good. Cool. So to get us started, let's talk about our jobs and like what it means to have a job in like the cloud native land from our current perspective. Brian, do you want to go ahead and kick us off? Oh, wow. So cloud native jobs. What is my job? My job is I look at productivity of developers and people who are using Kubernetes. So my job is to understand cloud native apps, but also understand that the systems that they are running on are complex and whether they be Windows or Linux or Mac based, being able to understand those too. So really my job is a combination of a senior developer composed with a senior level admin, whether it be Windows or Linux. So maybe I am the actual epitome of DevOps. Yeah, you seem to be kind of a fusion of the two. Cool. And Carlicia? My job is, so I'm mainly a developer, but to do the job that I need to do, I need to be a bit of a DevOps person as well, because as I've talked many times here on the show, I work on an open source tool called Valero that does backup and recovery for Kubernetes clusters. So I need to be able to put up a cluster at least with the three main providers, Azure, Google Cloud Platform, and AWS. So I need to, to know how to do that, how to tweak things, how to troubleshoot things. And I don't think it, when we think of a, just a straight-up developer, that usually is not part of the daily activity. So in that sense, I think I'm not sure how we would define a cloud-native job, but I think my job, if there is such a thing, my job definitely is a cloud-native job because I have to interact with these cloud-native technologies even beyond what I, the actual app that I'm developing, which runs inside a Kubernetes cluster, so it ties in. And you, Nick? So my job is I'm a cloud-native architect or a Kubernetes architect. I'm not sure what we're calling ourselves these days, honestly. And what that means is we work with customers to help them along their cloud native journey. Either that means helping them set up like a Kubernetes cluster and then getting them like running with, you know, certain tools that are going to make their life easier or helping them develop tools in their cloud environments to help make the running of their jobs easier. So we kind of run the gamut of developers and sysadmins a bit and consultants. So we kind of touch a little bit of everything. And so let's take a step back now and talk about what we think a cloud native job looks like. Because for me, like that's kind of hard to describe. Like a cloud native job seems to be any job 
that has to do with some cloud native technology, but that's kind of broad, right? You could have things from sysadmins, people who are running their cloud infrastructure for the company who are like managing things like, you know, rights access, accounting, that sort of thing, to people who are doing development like yourselves, like Brian and Curly, so you guys are doing this, this type of work. Is there anything that you think is like unique to a cloud native job? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting to talk about, I think, because especially in relation to if you don't have a cloud native job, what do you have and how is it different? I wonder if the new cloud native job title is the new full stack developer for developers, because I think it's easier to conceptualize what a cloud native job is for systems admin or DevOps person. But for a developer, I think it's a little more tricky, right? Is it, but is it the new full stack? Is it now that the developer, even if you're not doing, for example, my application runs inside Kubernetes. It's an extension of Kubernetes. But some applications just run on Kubernetes as a platform. So now are we talking about developers with a cloud native title, like cloud native software engineer, and for those developers, does it mean that they now have to design code and deploy consistently? You know, in my old days, when I, before doing this type of work, I would deploy apps, but it was not all the time. There was a system, every single job I had, the system was different. The one thing that I love about Kubernetes is that if I was just a regular app developer, again, as opposed to like extending Kubernetes, right? If I was building apps that would run on Kubernetes as opposed to extending Kubernetes, and if I had to deploy that on Kubernetes, if I moved jobs and they were working with Kubernetes, the process would be exactly the same. And that's one really cool thing about, I wouldn't mind, in other words, I wouldn't mind so much if I had to do deployment. In the deployment, the process was the same everywhere. Because it's really painful to do like a one-off deployment here and there. Each place was different. I had to write a ton of notes to make sure, you know, it was like 200 steps. <laughs> and if any one of them went wrong, you had to troubleshoot. And I, I'm not a systems admin, so it would be a struggle. Yeah. It's each system, it's not that I can learn, but each system would be different. And I'm like, anyway, I think I went off on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Brian but I also, wanted, I also wanted oh. to mention that I searched on LinkedIn for cloud native in the jobs section. And there are a ton of job titles, job postings with cloud native in the title. Like a lot of it is architect, but there's also product manager. There is also software engineer. I found one that was senior Kubernetes engineer. <laughs> so it's definitely a thing. All right. So... What is the question here? It was, what do we think a cloud native job looks like, essentially? All right. So I'm going to blow your mind here. So basically, what is the cloud? The cloud is other people's computers. So it's OPC. And what is Kubernetes? Well, basically, it's a way that we can run our software on other people's computers, aka the cloud. Kubernetes makes running software in the cloud easier. So what that really breaks down to is if you are running software on other people's computers or if you were designing software that runs well on clouds, well, you're a cloud-native person. 
So it actually, the term has basically been co-opted for marketing purposes by who knows who, by basically everyone. But what I think is as long as you are working on software that runs on modern infrastructure, which means that nodes may go away, you might not own all of your services. You might use a leased database server, you know, something like RDS from Amazon. Everyone working in that realm, working with software that may go away with things that aren't theirs, is doing cloud native work. And we just happen to be doing it on Kubernetes because that's the most popular option right now. But it isn't the only option, and it probably won't be the final option. So do you see any difference between what is required for a job like that today versus maybe 10 years ago or five years ago, Brian? Yeah, actually, I do see some differences. One of the biggest differences is that there's a lot more services out there that are provided to help you do what you need to do. So 10 years ago, having a database provider would be hard because one, the network wouldn't be good enough and your hosting company probably didn't have that unless you were at AWS and even they didn't have that. So now what we get to take advantage of is things are just easier. It's easier to fire up databases. It's easier to add nodes to our production. It's easier to have multiple productions. It's easier to keep that all in order. And it's easier to put automated configuration around that than it was 10 years ago. Now, five years ago, so back in 2014, I would actually say that the way that we progressed since then is that we became more mature. I remember when Kubernetes came out and my, I thought it was going to win, but Mesosphere was Mesosphere with Aurora or Marathon was actually better than Kubernetes. Just it worked out of the box for what we thought we could do with it. But now what we have now is we know what we can do with distributed computing. And now we have a great set of software for multiple vendors to allow us to do what we want to do. So that's the best part about now versus five years ago. Yeah, I have to agree with that. It's definitely easier. As a developer, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's easier. As an example, I remember when there was Rails Rumble maybe 10 years ago, I don't know. And, yeah, I remember. And yeah. you, had, you did a video showing step-by-step step how to how to boot up a Linux server to run your apps on that server. <laughs> I don't remember why we needed to boot up from scratch. Remember that? Brian? I do remember that. That was 2007 or eight. So it was, a, it was a long time ago. And that was one of the things that made me very impressed about you because I followed all the steps and at the end it worked. So you just was, you were right on with as far as the instructions went. But I think doing that, I think it took me about two hours. I remember it took a long time. And because these, again, these are things that I do once in a while. I, I don't do these things all the time. And now we can use a Terraform script and have something running in a matter of, you know, 15 minutes. If you have Sidebar. Yeah. Quick sidebar. Yeah, we can use Terraform. I use Terraform for even all my personal infrastructure. So things that are running in my house use Terraform. Like all my work stuff uses Terraform. But still, it's sometimes easier to just write a script or type in the commands on the command line or click something. So... We're still not to the point where using things like Terraform actually makes us not want to do it manually. And that's how I know that we're not to our ultimate level of maturity yet. But if you want to, the options are there and they're pretty good. Yeah. 
So, Carlisa, you said something that kind of reminded me and made me kind of go down this path. While we're talking about, like, there are certain challenges that we aren't faced anymore in a cloud-native land. Like, things are easier. There are certain things that are easier, not to say that our jobs are easy, like you like you were saying, Carlisa. But it was something, it was along the lines of, like, a developer now needs to be, like, a cloud-native job is now the full-stack kind of job or full-stack developer. that Like, that was the name of the game back in the day. Now it's a cloud native job. I actually kind of agree with that in a sense where a cloud native developer or anyone in the cloud native realm has to exist, not just in their own silo anymore. You need to understand more of the infrastructure that you're using to write your code on someone else's computer better. And I I actually kind of like that. So exactly. Yeah. There are certain challenges now in cloud native that are gone. So the things that were hard before, like spinning up a server, you know, getting a database, these things are gone. And that now frees us to worry about more complicated or more abstract ideas, like how do we have everyone agree on an API to use and thus rises Kubernetes. Yeah. No, and I see that as a very positive thing. It, it might sound like it's a huge burden to ask developers to now have to know this. But again, if we stick to the same stack, the burden diminishes really quickly because you learn it once and then that's it. So that's one huge advantage. If, if it works out this way, I mean, you know, I'm all for like, you know, the best technology should win, not, but there is that advantage if we remain using the same container orchestrator, you know, we use containers, we can run our code as if we were running in any machine. And so one advantage that I see is that I've had cases where you know, things would work on my computer, TM, mm-hmm. and it would be deployed and some one little stupid thing wouldn't work because the way the URL was redirected, didn't work, broke things, I got yelled at. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you want, okay, you want me to do this right? Give me a server. And back then, I was like, yeah, good luck. I'm, I'm going to give you a server. Haha, <laughs> no mm-hmm. way. It was just so expensive. Developers would be lucky to get a testing environment or, or a staging environment. And even when you got there, you had to coordinate with QA and that was process. And now, because I have access to my own servers here, right? And I can just imagine if I were a developer building apps to run Kubernetes, an admin could just say, okay, you have these resources, go for it. And I'll have my own namespace and I could run my codes as if he was running in a production environment and I'll have just more assurance that my code works basically. Yeah. Which is, to me is very satisfying. It's one last thing to worry about. So if I deploy, you know, something to production, I, I have already tested it. Yeah. And that's great. That's something I really do cherish about the current landscape. We can actually test these things out locally and have confidence that they'll work at least fairly well in production, right? But it's not just running things locally. You can actually get access to like a little slice of a, let's say an AWS server and just Mm -hmm. ship your things there and test it there. But because these system admins people, they can just carve out that little one slice for your team or even on a per person basis, maybe that's too much, but it's relatively uncomplicated to do that and not very costly. Yeah. 
So you mentioned a team and the name of a team that I, I haven't heard of in quite some time, which is QA. So how do we think the rise of cloud native have affected jobs? And also kind of tangentially to that, like what were jobs like prior to cloud native? Because I haven't heard of a QA team in many of the organizations that I've touched. Now, I'm not touching their like production dev teams that they actually may exist, but I just haven't heard that name in a while. And I'm wondering if like jobs like that have kind of gone away with the rise of cloud native. No, uh, <laughs> I'm going to end that rumor right here. That is a that whole was, untruth. That was not a rumor. I was, that was just conjecture <laughs> on my part. <laughs> totally unfounded. So we got to think, what does QA do? QA is supposed to be responsible for the quality of our applications. And when they first started, there wasn't a lot of good tooling. So a lot of our QA people were manual testers. They started the app, they clicked on everything, they put in all the inputs and saw what came back. And they were professional app breakers. I say over a decade ago, we got more automated tools. And moving into now, you can automate your web browser. You can actually write software to do all the actions that a human would do. So what we found is that QA as a profession has actually matured. And you can see that because Google, I don't think they even have QA. They have, what do they call them? Software engineers under test or SDEs. And what they do are they're developers in their own right, but they write software that makes it easier for developers to write code that works well and the code that can be tested. So I think that the role has matured and has taken another angle in a lot of cases, but even where we work, there are QA engineers in our group and we still need them because you've seen the meme where you talk about unit testing and it would be like a door that had all the right parts, but it didn't fit in its casing or two hot handles on a sink. The pieces worked right. They both put out hot water, because they were, but together they didn't work. So we still have that. It just looks a little bit different now. And then also a lot of software is not written in a huge monolithic cycle where we would take six months to release a new version or a year or a year and a half. Now people are trying to turn around a lot of software quicker. So QA has had to optimize how they work to work in those processes. They're still there though. Okay. I would hope so. I mean, I can't answer the question if the question is, do we have as much QA efforts out there as before? I don't know, but I would hope so because if you don't have a QA, if you're not QA in your apps, then your users are. <laughs> Yeah. That's not good. For my team, for example, we do our own QA, but we do QA. We don't have separate people doing it. We do it ourselves. Yeah. It might be just because it's pretty specialized. I mean, we are a small team to begin with. And what we do is pretty specialized. It would be difficult to bring someone in and teach them. And if they're just running QA, I don't know. Maybe be, I don't think it would be that difficult. We can just have instructions, you know, run these commands. This is what the output should be. I don't think mm -hmm. it would be that difficult. Take that back. But still, we do it ourselves. So the question was more less in line with like what happened to QA. It was more like, how do we think that cloud native has affected jobs and the job market? And it sounds like that jobs have changed because of cloud native. They've matured as we were just discussing with QA where people aren't doing the same kind of drudgery or the same kind of toil that they were doing before. 
now we're using more tooling to do our jobs and kind of lifting up each position to be more cloud native right? More development and infrastructure focused at the same time. At least that's what I was getting from it. Yeah, I think that is true. But I think all types of development jobs, especially jobs that are in the cloud native space, have changed. One good example would be with organizations moving to cloud native apps, we're starting to see, and this is all anecdotal, I have no evidence to back this up, that there are more developers who are on call for the software they write because one, they know it better than anyone else and they're closer to it. And two, because having an ops group that just supports apps isn't conducive to being productive because there's no way that one group can understand all apps. So what we're finding is that in this new cloud native era that jobs are maturing and they're getting new functionality, they're losing some functionality, some jobs are combining, but it's still at the end of the day, it's the same thing we were doing 20 years ago, but it just all has new titles and we use new software to do it which is good because um, some of these ideas that we came up with 20, 30 years ago are still good ones today. Mm -hmm. And that's actually an interesting question. Do you think that it's just the titles that are changing or are the functions changing, right? So it's like sysadmins used to be sysadmins, now they're CREs. Well, then there were DevOps for a while and now they're CREs or SREs, I should say, or our support team are now CREs, customer reliability engineering. Is that just a title change or are there functional differences? And I'm inclined to believe that they're functional differences. I think it's both. I think it's the same reason why all engineers after two years in the field are somehow senior engineers. People feel like they have progress when they get new job titles, even though you're the most junior engineer on this team. How can you be a senior engineer? And then also the same thing with CRE. Shout out to Google for making that term popular. But really what it comes down to is maybe the focus changed, but maybe it didn't. Maybe we were already doing that. Maybe we were already doing resilience engineering with our customers, and maybe we already had great customer support or a customer success team. But I do think that there has been some changes in jobs because what we're finding is that with modern languages that people are using, so teams are moving away from C++ to things like Swift and Go and Rust, we're finding that because our software is easier to write. We actually don't have to think about some of the things that we did before. With Go, technically, you don't have to worry about memory access. With Rust, 100%, you don't have to worry about null pointer exceptions. They don't exist. So now that we've freed our developers to do more development rather than more debugging, then what we can find is that the jobs will actually change over time. But at the end of the day, and even where we work right now and then all over the place, People are devs, they do ops stuff, they do security stuff, or they're pointy-haired bosses. And I challenge anyone listening to this to find something where I am not telling the truth. Some people might do both or more than one thing, but at the end of the day, we can still break it down to what people do. Yeah. Alicia, any thoughts on that? No, I think that resonates with me. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that there are some functional changes. I think that, you know, support versus CRE isn't just like getting tickets received and then going through a ticket queue and filing those things. I think there are some changes with like, I know from like our CRE team, they're like actively going out and saying like, here's our opinion based on these technologies. And this is like why we validated these things. 
they're reevaluating their support model constantly and just making sure that they're like abreast of everything that's going on so they can more resiliently engineer their customer support. That being but, said, uh, but hold on one second though. Okay. That's what I'm talking about with the marketing because mm-hmm. guess what? It is support. A good support team would be doing all those things, whether it's called customer reliability engineering or whatever. It's support. It's customer success. It's getting in front of our customers' problems and having the answers before they even ask the question. That's good support. So whenever we label things like CRE, that's somebody in some corporate marketing center who thought that that was a good idea. But it doesn't mean because you don't call that CRE, it's not good support. Because I will tell you in the past at DigitalOcean, we did that. And the term CRE didn't even exist yet. But we were out there in front of problems whenever we could be. And we thought that was good for our customers. So what we're finding is that people have the capabilities now with the progress of whatever technologies we have that we can actually give our customers good support. And you don't have to be a Google-sized company to do that anymore. So that's the plus. Yeah, I, I agree with that. One of us to talk a little bit about for people who are not working in a cloud native space, but they see it coming or they want to move towards doing something more in that area, what should they be looking at? What should they be brushing up on or learning or incorporating into what they are currently doing? And of course, different roles, that answer will be different for each different role. We have developers, we have DevOps or SREs or admins or operators, managers, recruiters, right? It, it changes a little bit for everybody. Well, I'll hop in here first and say it's all code at the end of the day. When it comes down to what we're doing in cloud native for ops, doesn't really matter. You could take a lot of the same principles and do them on-prem or wherever else you happen to be. I mean, I, and I'm not trying to diminish the role of anyone that we work with or anyone in our industry whenever I say this, though, but when it comes down to it, what I see is people understand the operating system, mostly Linux. People understand public key encryption, so they, they understand PKI. You know, we do a lot with certs. They understand networking. They can tell you how many IPs are on a 23, and if I'm giving you CIDR numbers out there. These are things that people know. I don't think there's anything specific for cloud native other than learning Kubernetes itself or Mesosphere or Docker Swarm or whatever, or the tool from HashiCorp that always escapes me whenever I have to say it out loud. But it's all the same thing. What you need to know and to be good at any job where you're doing ops, you need to understand the theory of operating computers. You understand operating systems, networking, and how that all works, and then all the things around it, and some security. For developers now, it's a little bit interesting because a lot of the apps that we're writing these days are more stateless. So for a developer, you need to think more about my app may crash. So anything that I'm holding in memory that's important can go away at any given time. So either one, I need to store it on more than one thing, I need to have it in a distributed fashion, or two, I need to store it in the database instantly. And I would once again challenge anyone to say that if you're a developer who can actually understand those topics, you would be able to apply for a cloud native job in this space. Because frankly, a lot of developers, a lot of cloud native developers writing apps that work in cloud native, two years ago, they were doing something else. Yeah, that sounds right. 
I think for developers, where you said, I think focusing on authentication, how do you handle secrets, keys, and the question of role authentication and role authorization, and if you can even like be well versed in developing clients and servers and handling search for that interaction. And it's, I guess it comes down to being well versed in distributed systems development is what this whole cloud native is all about. And on top of that, I think being well versed on how to push your apps into containers, you know, creating images, creating containers, pushing them to a repository, pulling them from a repository, in manipulating, creating containers in different ways. And then on top of that, yes, you, maybe you want to learn Kubernetes. And we can talk about that too, but I wanted to give Nick a chance to <laughs> talk about this aspect. I agree with pretty much everything you guys have said. I think the only thing I would add is like really understanding how to use and work with an API and an API-driven environment, because that's what a lot of cloud native is, right? It's using someone else's computer. So how do you do that? It's via an API. Like yeah. we're talking about containers and orchestration. Those are all done, hopefully, with an API. Luckily, if you're using Kubernetes, which likely you are, it's all API-driven. So using an API, I think, and getting familiar with that, most developers, I think, at some point are familiar with that, but just that would be the main thing I would think, too, outside of what you and Brian have already said, are what's needed to do like a cloud-native job. Yeah. Now, if someone wanted to learn Kubernetes, well, there's the Kubernetes Academy. There is a Kubernetes Academy. And that's pretty awesome. But do you think going through the certification would help? I think that's a good place to start. So the current certification that exists is the CKA, the Certified Kubernetes Administrator. And I think that's a good starting place, especially for someone who's not really touched Kubernetes before. If they're like, how do I know like the basics of Kubernetes? Going through that certification process, I think will be a huge step forward because that really covers most of what you're going to touch it on a day-to-day -day basis with Kubernetes. And there's the CKAD as well, which is for developer. The CKAD is uh, Certified Kubernetes Application developer. Application developer, oh, and the other one is certified Kubernetes admin. Yeah, I was like, administrative and developer? Like, <laughs> If you're brand new, I think it's worthwhile doing the developer first because it's mostly the commands. You go through the commands just so you have a, like a knowledge of how to interact with Kubernetes. And the admin is more like how do you manage, you know, how do you troubleshoot a cluster and how do you manage a cluster. So it's more involved, I think. You need to know more. But in any case, I agree with you that it would help because it serves as a syllabus for what to learn. It's like, okay, these are the things that if you know these things, it would help you a lot if you had to do anything with Kubernetes. Yeah. I don't think you'd need to have a certification to do a job, right? I really don't think so. No, Unless it's like required so. by law. Like, No, no, no. To. Yeah. Not at all what I'm saying. But if you don't know anything at all and, like, and you are like, where do I start? I would recommend that. That's a, not a bad place to start. Yeah. Or if you know some things, but you feel like you don't know others and you want to fill in the gaps and you don't know what, what your gaps are, also same idea. What do you think, Brian? Do you think having the certification would be useful? I don't know. Some people need it. 
but I'm also, I don't, I almost so barely graduated from high school and I don't have a college degree. So I have always leaned on myself for learning things on my own schedule, at my own pace, on my own terms. But some people do need the structure provided to them by certifications. And I've only heard good things of people taking those tests. So I think for some people, it's actually really good. But for others, it's, it might, might be a waste of time because what will actually happen if you get that certification? If you work at some large companies... I do know this for a fact, like getting your AWS certificates actually had a money thing behind it. But a lot of places, I don't know. Yeah. But it couldn't hurt. Is, and that's the most important piece. It can't hurt. Yeah, I totally agree. You learn at least something, even when I've taken like a certification exam for something that I was like already pretty aware of. I always learned at least one thing by taking like an examination. You, there's, they'll ask a question that you like never even thought of. But I also agree with Brian where it's like, I don't have my CKA and I think I'm a pretty damn good expert of Kubernetes. So I don't think anything would change for me to take. Oh yeah. I work with so many people who have none of those two certifications and they are absolutely experts. Yeah. I was talking about like, I, it would help me. I want to take those two certifications because you help me fill in the gaps. And I I know Mm -hmm. there's a lot that I'm going to learn, especially with the admin one. So it's using the, the curriculum as a guide for what I need to learn and then testing, did I really learn? Yeah. And also make yeah. me feel good. <laughs> and that's other it. than that, I don't think it has any, I don't know, I don't think it has value. And that's the most important piece, what you just said. It made you feel good because you take certifications to test your knowledge against yourself in a lot of cases. So I think it's good. I just read a lot. You can, I mean, people cannot see behind me. I don't, think I have as many books as Carlesia just up there, but I've read all mine except for like four of them. Yeah, I did not read all these books. <laughs> I mean, a lot of these books are school related books that I kept because they're really good and books that I acquired and I have read some, but not all the entire book. Some things you know, I use for reference, but definitely have not read. Don't be impressed. Have not read all these books. Hopefully one day when I retire, maybe. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, I, I think that so uh, one interesting thing would be the amount of study you need to do to gain a certification when you're not working in the space actually gives you that little bit of push that you need to make sure that you understand that you know what you need to know. So if you organically came to Cloud Native, as I did, as I'll explain my story, you know, I'm not really interested in that certification. But if I wanted to change and and maybe I wanted to change my focus to doing more graphic stuff. And there was a certification for this. Maybe I would think about it just to make sure that I knew that I was eligible for these jobs that I was trying for. So, yep. yeah, that makes sense. Also, my books are over there and I've read most of the way through many of my books, but not all the way through because a lot of them are boring. <laughs> so, but I will say, and since we're talking about books and talking about getting yourself into Kubernetes land. Right now is actually the best time to buy books because there's lots of them. And I'm not actually saying that these books are super awesome, but some of them are. Notably, this programming Kubernetes book is pretty awesome. And the reason it's so awesome is because my quote is on the back of it. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, my name's on the back of it. And then another book that I just picked up lately is called the Kubernetes Cookbook. 
and it's for building cloud-native applications from O'Reilly. And the reason I like it is because I've always, since, I mean, 20 years ago, I love reading O'Reilly cookbooks because small problem, answer with an explanation. And then there's another one called Kubernetes Patterns, which I just started, and I think it's pretty good too. And just to say that these are not endorsements, but this is what I'm reading right now. It's like a thousand pages here. The things that I am trying to get through right now to keep up to date with what we're trying to do. Because actually the biggest problem with what we're doing is that we're trailblazing. So a lot of things that are happening, like the way that Kubernetes advances every few months is new, 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 new. So there's not a lot of prior art and what we're doing that's public. So what you need to do is turn yourself into someone who actually understands the theory of what we're doing rather than the practical application of it. Understand that piece too, but you got to understand the theory, which is why I said I've literally been doing the same thing for the last 25 years because I learned how to program and I learned a Unix and then I learned Linux and then I learned networking. Take all those lessons and I can apply them all the time. So that's actually the most important part about any of this. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Like going through the fundamentals helps so much more than going through the specifics. And in fact, trying to learn specifics without having the fundamentals, it can be very painful. And then you try to learn the fundamentals and then you go, oh, yeah, huh. <laughs> so totally makes sense. I've been trying to listen through YouTube lectures on distributed systems. And I have a lot of moments of, ah, that's why Kubernetes works this way, to address this problem. So, and I have that programming book, which is not in my office. I have to find, but yes, that's a very good book. I have this. Oh, Cloud Native DevOps with Kubernetes. That's another good book. Yes. I have it too. I have the same <laughs> one. Yes. Good book. And this, I haven't gotten through it. Yeah, it's called Kubernetes in Action. Yes, thank you for saying the name. Because <laughs> if you're not on the video, you wouldn't know. So really what we're saying... Uh, people say great things about the Kubernetes in Action. One. So I, I actually want to bring up another thing is that I read a lot. I like to read. I read a lot of blog posts. And here's another crazy thing. The YouTube videos from like KubeCon, every year or every few months, we publish 180 talks for free. And there's some good lessons in those. So... The good thing about getting into cloud native is that you can get into it for cheap because all this information out here, Kubernetes source is free. Go read it. Yes. I mean, 5,000 developers have worked on it. I'm sure you'll get a lot out of that. Don't do that. <laughs> but like YouTube talks, blog posts, just following your favorite SIGs, special interest group for Kubernetes, there are community meetings. You can learn so much about how this space works and really how to write software in it without spending a dime other than to have a computer and internet. Yeah. And I'm going to give a tip for people that I actually caught on not too long ago. I subscribe to YouTube Premium, which I think is $5 a month. It's the best $5 I've ever spent because really I, I don't have time to sit in front of a video unless it's like very special, right? And just like watch something. And reading is also very after I spend a whole day reading codes, my mind doesn't want to read anything else. So I love podcasts and I listen to a lot of podcasts. And now the YouTube videos are even, have been more educational to me. And even because the, the premium version of YouTube, if your phone locks, it will still play. 
And you can download yes. the videos. Oh, you can download the videos to, yeah, if you go in a camping trip or airplane, you have them. So it's been fantastic. I just yeah. put my headset, <laughs> my little Bluetooth headset, and as I'm doing laundry or as I'm cooking or anything, I am always listening to something. There goes the tip. Yeah, totally agree. I love YouTube premium. <laughs> no ads, as Brian said, is the best. I'm going to throw out a book recommendation, one written by my colleague and good friend, Craig Tracy, co-written, called Managing Kubernetes. And it's actually like, I was saying that like these tech books are kind of boring. This one's actually a lot of fun to read. It's written well and in a way that I found I kept turning the page. So I really liked it. Yeah, and it's only like 150 pages too. You could yeah, it's pretty great. short. And the software that Carlisa writes is the last chapter of it. No, the next to last chapter. So Ah, shoot. All right, throw it out then. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I'm just saying it's another good book. And I like that we bring this up because this information is out there. But I know we're coming close to the end. And I had one thing that I want to talk about today. I was just about to bring that up. Please take us away. All right. So we've talked about, you know, where we've come from. And we've talked about and things in the space about the jobs, how we keep up to date. But really, the most important piece is what happens in the future? You know, Kubernetes is only five years old. So theoretically, cloud native jobs are only a few years old. So how does cloud native move in the future? And I do have some thoughts on this one. So what we're going to see is what we've seen over the last two decades is that our stacks will get more complex. We will run more apps. We will have more CPUs and more networking. And it's not even Moore's Law stuff. We'll just have more stuff. So what I find is that in the future, what we need to think about are things like automation. We need to think about better resilience, apps that can actually take care of themselves. So your app goes down, what happens? Well, nothing because it brought itself back up. So I see that the jobs that we have now are just going to evolve into better versions of what we have right now. So developers will still be developing. The more interesting piece is that we're going to have more developers because more people are taking these bootcamp courses, more people are going into computer science in school. So we're actually gonna have more developers out there. So all that means is that we're just gonna have more problems to solve, at least for the next few years. Generation from now, I couldn't tell you what's gonna happen. Maybe we'll all be out of work. I'll be retired, so I probably won't care. But so just think about this. Now is the literal best time to get into writing software, and specifically for cloud-native type applications, whether you're in operations or you're writing applications that run on clouds or anything like this, this is the best time because it's a still beginning and there's more work to do than we have people. And if you look through jobs postings, you'll realize that, wow, everyone is looking for this. Yeah, and at the same time, there is a sufficient amount of resources out there for you to learn. Even if you don't want to, if you want to or you can't pay, you have, we know it's so much at the beginning that there is nothing. So it it is a very good time. Yeah, the wealth of knowledge that's out there that's for free is unheard of. It's unprecedented. And yeah, I totally agree that this is the best time. Brian, if we go by your, your thesis throughout this entire episode, Basically, we're going to be doing the same thing in 20 years as we're doing now. This is the same thing we did 20 years ago. So it's probably going to be, like I said, developers are going to developate. Sysadmins are going to (laughs) sysadministrate. I love that. And security people are going to complain about everything. (laughs) That's never going to change. So we're just going to be running on like quantum applications in 20 years, but they're still going to be if else 
statements? My prediction is that we are going to have greater server access, like easier server access, and especially developers. And there will be more buttons to press and more visual tools. So you don't have to be necessarily logging into a server through command lines. Will be, there will be more tools abstracting all of that detailed work that develops. So more, more abstractions on top of abstractions. Yeah, yeah. That's my prediction. Mm -hmm. Why not? Well, you know what? I mean, it, that's true because that's what we've been doing forever now. So we're going to continue on doing this thing. Because it's what people want. <laughs> because it works. Yeah. yeah. It makes life easier for some people. And yes. I don't see why we wouldn't move in that direction. But before we wrap up, unless somebody, you guys want to make predictions too, I really wanted to touch base on the hiring side of things the recruiters and hiring managers before interviewing, trying to, like, I can imagine there's a whole bunch of people out there who need to recruit people to do these cloud native jobs. And how can we help them? Like, can we give them some tips? How can they attract people? What should they be looking for? Well, I guess my thought is that I really feel like recruiters need to start learning the technology that they're hiring for. I don't think that they can hide behind the idea that they're recruiters and they don't need to know if you, if you want to hire good people, if you want to like weed out the bad people or whatever it is that you're trying to do, you need to actually learn the technology that you're hiring for. And I think like we're saying, there's now a wealth of knowledge that's free for you to access. Please. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not going to disagree thing. with that. And the interesting thing is when he says learn it, it doesn't mean that you have to be able to produce it, but you should understand how it works at the minimum. Yeah. And also know when someone's, you know, BSing you <laughs> in a tech screen. But uh, it's, it's not easy because you might go in a direction in, with the intention of learning and you might misunderstand things. And, yeah. how do you, you know, how deep do you have to go to not misunderstand the technology? You know what? I don't think there's an answer for that. I think it's just you don't know and there's something in between being an expert. You need to be something in between where if you're hiring for cloud native and Kubernetes, you can't offer a job that has once 10 years of Kubernetes experience. First of all, Kubernetes is huge and no one has all of Kubernetes experience throughout the whole stack. And second of all, Kubernetes is only five years old. So please don't do that to yourself as well. So you should know how old it is and at least know the parts and what your team is going to be working on. But for managers, wow. Actually, I don't have a good answer for that. So I'm just going to, I'll put on that one. Well, how would it be different? Actually, I, it's going to sound like I asked a loaded question, but I just now had this realization. I don't think it would be different from what we were saying for, in regards to giving tips for people to prepare themselves, to make move into the space if they're not working with any of this stuff it'll be the same like try to find people who know distributed systems they can debug well i'm not even going to go into like working well with people that's such a given <laughs> I'm just, let's just keep it to the tech stack mm -hmm. and all of those things that we recommended for people to learn i don't know yeah sounds good to me all right. Well, I think that just about wraps it up for this week of the podcast, the Keepless Podcast. I thought this was a really interesting discussion. It's it was kind of it was cool to like talk about 
where we were and where we're going and you know what kind of brought us all together as i said nick do you want to share with us what your tagline for this episode was <laughs> yeah the tagline for this episode is cream cash rules everything around me dollar dollar bills y'all all right thank you so much thank you brian thanks for joining us thank you for having me yeah and thank you carlicia this was really good thank you yeah i had a lot of fun bye y'all bye. bye bye thank you for listening to the podlets cloud native podcast find us on twitter at the podlets and on the podlets.io website that is the podlets all together where you'll find transcripts and show notes we'll be back next week stay tuned by subscribing you